Pandemics are sometimes called great equalizers. Everyone can get sick. No one is immune. But over the last year, the COVID-19 pandemic revealed in undeniable terms just how unequal life is in America. And it made those inequalities worse. The disproportionate impact COVID-19 is having on communities of color. Rates of infection, hospitalizations, and deaths are higher for minorities. The coronavirus pandemic has taken a bigger financial toll on minority communities in this country. Generations of inferior medical care, deeply entrenched economic disparities, a biased system of justice, all the many forms and shapes structural racism takes, they were all there, all along. Black and brown Americans knew it. But it took a global pandemic and nationwide protests for the rest of America to see it. In this episode, four people who've lived those inequalities firsthand. A Houston ER doctor battling the virus sweeping across communities of color. It's been a fearful time. There have been times that I have been angry. It's been a, a trying time. A psychiatrist in training who's seen her own family get awful care from the same healthcare system she works in. It makes me sad that a pandemic had to happen George Floyd had to be murdered for people to realize that this is something that we need to talk about and we need to rectify. A Latina woman who lost not one, but both parents to COVID within hours of each other. It doesn't matter that my parents were ill, that they had issues. We're still human. We still have a life to live. They still had time. And a researcher who has long studied America's deep disparities and is watching them deepen in the pandemic. Within my lifetime, I've experienced Hurricane Katrina, housing crisis, 9-11. They always expose the structural inequalities that exist in this country. COVID-19 didn't create these divides, the massive gaps in who gets to work, to stay safe, to get care, to live. But over the last year, the pandemic did make them worse. From the PBS NewsHour, this is America Interrupted, The Longest Year, a four-part series looking at the staggering toll the pandemic has taken on America. I'm Amna Nawaz, and this is Episode 3. Hey, Dr. Bissett, how are you? How are you? Good to see you again. Dr. Richina Bissett is an emergency medicine physician in Houston, Texas. She's one of those doctors who only ever wanted to be a doctor. I had all of the stereotypical little doctor kits. Um, I was an only child for a while, so I had to kind of come up with creative single play. <laughs> and I used to make little um, clay hearts out of Play-Doh and stick them on my dolls and pretend that I was doing surgery. So I've always Her hospital is in the heart of one of the most diverse cities in the country. Almost half of all residents are Latino. More than 20% are Black. Around 7% are Asian American. The inequalities were always very clear to her, way before the pandemic. 
So at baseline, we already have a very, very large Hispanic population and a very large uninsured population. At least 60 to 70% of our patients do not have insurance. That has not changed during the pandemic. And I think it's really drawn out those health inequities a bit more because you see the patients that are being affected are the, the Hispanic and the uninsured population. Right now, I'm no longer primarily working at that level one trauma center, but my current facility is a little bit different in that most of the population now is insured and has you know, does have good access to primary care physicians and, and things of that nature. But I'm still seeing that most of the patients that are coming in are African-American and Hispanic patients. What Dr. Bissett was seeing locally was also unfolding nationally. Last spring, when the virus first hit, it disproportionately hit communities of color. During the fall wave of infections, one study found that Hispanic people were 16 percent more likely to die than white Americans. Native Americans and Alaskan Natives, 26 percent. Black Americans, 37 percent. And Asian Americans, 53 percent. For patients who don't have good access to care, for patients who may have language barriers that, that cause intimidation or fear when they're seeking care, and for patients who are worried about the financial implications of high hospital bills, they tend to try to take care of themselves at home until they can't do it any longer. With COVID, you can be at home with a little cough and runny nose and fevers and you know be doing okay, and within 12 hours, progress to sudden respiratory distress. And what people don't realize is that early on during this pandemic, we had no idea what we were dealing with. There were no magic drugs. There still are no magic drugs, but we didn't have any therapeutics. We kind of were figuring it out as we went along. So we had these patients who were very, very sick with a disease that we knew little about and literally had nothing to treat them with. It was horrifying. The disparities persisted over the year. They widened, and today, they couldn't be more stark. Nationwide, Black people are almost twice as likely as white people to die from COVID. Latinos and Native Americans, around two and a half times as likely. Bissett says it's not just about COVID. There is an economic component. We know that those who are of lower economic status succumb to certain illnesses quicker and easier than others. Um, we know that African-Americans especially are at higher risk for certain diseases, such as hypertension and diabetes. So if generations of your family has had those diseases, you're going to be at higher risk of getting those things as well. Um, we know that people who live in food deserts and don't have access to fresh fruits and fresh vegetables are having higher rates of heart disease and diabetes and hypertension because of the things that they're eating. But that's because of what they have access to. Those patients are less likely to have insurance, more likely to live in high-risk conditions, more likely to have jobs that expose them to the virus. Over the last year, she remembers seeing this over and over again in patient after patient. Some of them, even now, she can't forget. I had a young patient, and this was, you know, early on in the pandemic, probably uh, April or May of last year. Um, he was 40 years old, Spanish-speaking male, and I was told that he had COVID, um, was having a little bit of shortness of breath, was going to be admitted to the hospital. Using the little bit of Spanish that I knew, I asked him how he was doing. He said he was doing okay. And I kind of went 
and continued to do my rounds. Um, probably about an hour later, I walked into the room and it was a completely different patient that I saw. He was now sitting on the edge of the bed. He couldn't even lay back because he was having such a hard time breathing. I knew we were gonna have to put him on a ventilator, but before I could even get my equipment into the room, he lost a pulse and he coded. And we worked on this gentleman for at least an hour because, you know, part of it was me wanting to do my best, but I think part of it was me also feeling a little bit guilty, you know? This man, I found out after the fact, had a wife. He had multiple children. He was the sole provider in his household. This is not, you know, just devastating for them emotionally, but it's going to be devastating for them economically and financially. And he died by himself in a hospital room alone because we couldn't have visitors there with him. And that's just one story of so many that, you know, really has impacted me during this time because I felt helpless. I did what I could do and it wasn't enough. Do you find that you've carried those stories with you? I can still rec remember his face. As I'm telling you this story, I, I know exactly what room it was in the emergency department. I remember that day, I remember that time, I remember walking in and just feeling helpless and asking for help. And you know, other doctors coming from other departments and basically throwing up their hands because there was nothing any of us can do. Those disparities Dr. Bissett saw in the hospital aren't limited to critical care. They stretch across the entire U.S. healthcare system. Amanda Calhoun is training to be a psychiatrist. She's in the middle of her residency in Connecticut at Yale New Haven Hospital. And she says she learned early that the system doesn't always serve people who look like her. My mom's a pharmacist, but when my little sister was little and was having an anaphylactic reaction, um, to a nut. Um, the nurses didn't listen to my mother in the emergency department and delayed care to my sister. Um, so I think when they look at me or look at my family, status doesn't always protect you because they see a black person first. And so you hope that the physician, the nurse that you're getting is one that is vigilant about treating everyone equitably. But if not, then you may not get equitable care. And so I worry about my family all the time. This year, that worry became real when her uncle got sick. He went to the hospital. Amanda says he wasn't tested and was sent home. He later died of COVID-19. Who knows if my uncle had been tested when he first came to the emergency department, if he would have survived. And you want to know when your family member goes into the medical system that we as physicians did everything we could for your family member. It doesn't make it better if your family member passes away, but at least you know that they were treated the best that they could have been treated. And so the thing that I worry about a lot with my Black patients, with my Latinx patients, with my poor patients is, do they have that same security when their family members go into the medical system? And I don't think they do. There is this dual burden as a doctor of color, being part of the system that cares for patients, but also protecting them from racism in medicine. A major barrier? Black and brown patients don't see themselves reflected in that system. Black doctors like Regina Bissett and Amanda Calhoun are rare. Only 5% of physicians in America are Black. Fewer than 6% of physicians are Hispanic. To Dr. Bissett, that's a huge hurdle. 
I can speak a little bit of Spanish. So I'll listen sometimes and I hear the patient say something. I hear the interpreter tell me what the patient said. And in my mind, I know that's not the message that they were trying to convey. So if you can't even verbally communicate with the person that you're entrusting your health, your life, your medical care to, how is it that you can trust the advice that they're giving you and you can you know, feel as if you're safe doing what they tell you when you guys can't even speak to each other without having a third party involved? It should surprise no one, they say, that people of color don't always trust the U.S. healthcare system. There's good reason. An overall lack of access, a history of neglect and discrimination, and dark, dark chapters of outright medical abuse and torture. The decades-long Tuskegee syphilis study was run by the U.S. government. It let hundreds of Black men suffer from the disease, withholding treatment in the name of research. And that is just one example. That history has a long shadow, and Amanda Calhoun has seen the impact, even back when she was a medical student. Patients would come up to me after the attending would leave, the white attending, and say, do you agree with this? And, and that was sort of code for, can I trust them? And I got that. You know, there was a look of shared understanding between us. It would happen with my Black patients. It would also happen with my Latinx patients because I speak Spanish. They would sort of need that extra reassurance from me. You know, I was a medical student. I had barely any expertise, but they wanted to know, did I trust it? Sometimes they, they would also ask They saw you me. as someone they could trust in that moment. Exactly. And I tell them, hey, if you have questions and, and you think something is not right, please tell me. I want you to advocate for yourself. I want you to be vigilant. And actually, uh, I went to a career panel. It was a virtual career panel for Black high schoolers. We were supposed to be talking about, you know, their goals to become doctors. And instead, the conversation veered into how afraid they were to be patients. And I thought, wow. I mean, like, this wave of sorrow washed over me in a sense of, these are these are kids and they're worried about whether they're going to be treated fairly in the medical system. So I was frank with them and I said, you cannot trust every doctor and, and I want you to advocate for yourself. Dr. Bissett says she hears concerns like that all the time. I can't count the number of times where I've walked into a room, the patient meets my eyes, I introduce myself and I say, my name is Dr. Bissett, and I can see the visual reaction on their face and I can see their eyes open at the surprise that they have a Black female physician. And the patient-physician relationship immediately changes and I can sense that in them. For me as a Black woman, I not only have a medical responsibility to my patients, I have a social responsibility as well. Because that trust, that baseline trust that they have just by having a physician that looks like them brings out so many different aspects of conversation. And that distrust has only grown during the pandemic, especially when it comes to getting vaccinated. I've definitely had patients that have come in and I say my name and they say, oh, I recognize you. I saw you on TV. I wasn't going to get the vaccine and I heard you talking about it and I heard you say that you got vaccinated. And, you know, I heard you telling us that a black female scientist is one of the leading researchers for the Moderna vaccine and it made me feel comfortable and it made me feel safe. And trust it because it's coming from you. Absolutely. Absolutely. But even for the people that do trust the vaccine, it's often hard to access, for Black and brown communities especially. A lot of what we're doing with vaccine rollout 
although, you know, it may be well-intentioned, it's not giving us the result that we need. Um, I think that we, and when I say we, I mean just globally in totality, are expecting to set up these vaccination centers, make it available, and expect patients to come to us to receive the vaccine. Where we are right now with over half a million people dying, that's not the approach that we need to take. We need to put ourselves in those vulnerable communities and bring the vaccine to them. Dr. Bissette knows, as a Black woman in medicine, she's in a position to build trust with her patients of color. I think I've always known that I had a little bit more of a responsibility to my community and to my minority patients. And I'm so grateful um, to be in a position where, you know, yes, I can take care of you medically, but I also relate to you socially. You know, I, I can speak to some of the situations that you're having to deal with and some of the situations that you're living in because that's similar to my background as well. Being able to relate to people on that level has really served me well during this pandemic. But COVID-19 hasn't just highlighted the long-standing racism and disparities in the medical system. It's highlighted economic inequities too. Black Americans were really struggling with two epidemics, um, the pandemic and structural inequality. And, and both of them sort of combined to accelerate death and wealth extraction in, in our country. Andre Perry is a senior fellow at the Brookings Institution, a think tank in Washington, D.C. Perry spent his career unpacking the impact of structural racism in America. And he says you can't talk about disparities in healthcare without talking about economic realities. When the pandemic um, hit hard and we started to notice black and um, brown lives being lost at, at higher rates, um, a lot of people pointed to pre-existing conditions of health as the reason. But that was just a way to advocate responsibility for the structural problems that created those, those pre-existing conditions. Let's be clear, substandard housing has created more asthma than anything else. But m more so, it was our inability to shelter. And when we did shelter, folks were going to work, coming back home, and infecting their grandmothers, infecting their aunties. He says the economic cliff a lot of communities of color fell off in the pandemic was built on the seismic wealth gap between white Americans and black and brown Americans. Even before the pandemic, the numbers were staggering. In 2019, among white families in America, median wealth was about $190,000. For Latino families, it was $36,000. For black families, just $24,000. That wealth is what people use to endure economic shocks like we're experiencing now. And so um, the pandemic is one of the many epidemics that will happen. I mean, it, within my lifetime, I've experienced Hurricane Katrina, housing crisis, 9-11, and a number of other things. These things will happen, but they always expose the structural inequalities that exist in this country. Over the last year, those inequalities have been most apparent among essential workers. The people delivering your takeout and your Amazon orders, keeping trains and buses running, packing up your chicken and burgers in meatpacking plants. Those are hourly, low-wage jobs that are high-risk and can't be done remotely, and they are disproportionately filled by people of color. 
before the pandemic, data from the Bureau of Labor Statistics showed more than 30% of white workers in America could work from home. Only 19% of black workers and 16% of Latino workers could do the same. And so um, not only did we have to work and, and go in industries that exposed us to the, the, the crisis, we also suffered from unemployment at higher rates during the time. So people were having to make a decision to put food on the table and risk their life. And that's just a common occurrence because we lacked the wealth that was structurally prohibited from us through housing inequality, segregation, and employment discrimination. What about help from the government? Do you think the government did enough to provide financial relief to those who needed it? You know, the, the federal government simply missed um, the realities of wealth in this country. Last March, as the coronavirus officially became a pandemic and states quickly shut down, Congress did step in. But help wasn't offered to everyone impacted. Businesses with only one employee, the owner, were not included in the first round of COVID relief. That applied to 95% of Black-owned businesses and 91% of Latino-owned businesses. And even when Black and Brown-owned businesses were eligible for relief, they often didn't receive the loans. That's because while the government guarantees those loans, it's the banks, the lenders, who actually send businesses the cash— and they prioritize large and mid-sized businesses, which are primarily run by white business owners. And so that problem was a structural one. And so um, it was later when they recognized that so many black businesses were not getting the subsidy, did they make a correction. But by that time, so many businesses had to shutter for good. During the Great Recession, only 50% of black businesses survived compared to 60% of white businesses, um, largely because of the lack of wealth during an economic crisis. And so um, we've been down this road before. We know that there are structural barriers that the federal government, through somewhat colorblind approaches, just simply don't address. What does that look like? What is fixing those structural problems look like in practical steps for leaders in this country today? Oh, now is the time to have new home ownership programs where um, we provide people low interest loans and down payment assistance for ownership. Now is the time where um, we have free college um, for individuals so that they don't have to take on so much student loan debt. Now is the time to make sure that employees have the kind of benefits moving forward so that, that they can get relief when a medical um, emergency happens. I lean on this belief that we can actually change the structures that generate racist outcomes. And if we do that, we can see rapid change. If we tinker around the edges, it's going to be a long time coming. So that's why we really do need to explore dismantling this, this architecture of inequality while we have the attention of America. And Perry says as long as that architecture stands, people of color will struggle to survive. Blanca Velasquez and her family saw that firsthand. My parents should not have been a victims of COVID. They shouldn't have. 
She's a 47-year-old former social worker and mother of three from San Diego. Her area, like many Latino communities around the country, has been hit hard by COVID-19. But Blanca says she's not surprised. Many don't know how to read, many don't know how to write, especially the more elderly. And so they don't have ways of getting information except news. So it, the outreach for that population is, is difficult. Also having a, a multi-generational household, a lot of, of, of households are like that, especially in the Latino communities, many. Do you feel like that elevated the risk too? Yeah, yeah, absolutely, because a lot of the multi-generational households like mine have some type of worker who has to go out and work. You know, my husband has to go out and work. He's the only one in our house. How does my husband stop working? Who's, who's going to provide? How are we going to get insurance? You know, it's, it's, it's harder. When the pandemic hit, Blanca, whose parents lived with her, made the tough call to leave her job in social work. I kind of weighed my chances of the risk of bringing it home to my parents. And also I have immune issues. So I said, you know, it's either my health or, you know, the money. And I, I went with my health and my parents' health. That must have been a really hard decision. It was because I hadn't worked for a few years um, and I actually got a job that I loved. So I was sad about doing it, but... I mean, there was really no choice for me at that time. No choice because of how many family members she could infect if she caught COVID. And it wasn't just her parents in the house. Her husband, two sons, and a sister all live there. And her husband is one of those essential workers Andre Perry was talking about. He works in a manufacturing place where they do steel and construction. So he has to go. It was either he went and, you know and worked or we couldn't afford paying our rent. You know, we had our parents and they were 67, but they had their health issues. Um, and we always figured that if they got COVID, it would, be, it would be bad for them. Were you able to all stay safe? Unfortunately, no. Um, we were fine and the whole year and in January, we actually got sick of COVID. Who got sick? Everyone got sick? Everybody in the house. Oh, my gosh. I couldn't even move my body. I couldn't even stand. I could barely walk. It was like I've never felt any. I, I couldn't even explain it. I have arthritis, and it was like arthritis was everywhere in my body, in every joint. Like every muscle was inflamed. It was horrible. That week, the entire family got tested. All positive. Even Blanca's 67-year-old parents. Soon after, they both ended up in the hospital in two different hospitals. And my dad, um, he got intubated two days after he was taken to the hospital. On Sunday, um, February 7th, they called my brother um, and they told him that my dad did not have lung. My mom got to talk to him. Um, my mom told him um, he was the love of her life and that she was grateful she got to spend her life with him. <clears throat> Sorry. And, um, you got to talk to your dad then, too? Yeah, and I told my dad, I love you, dad, and you know you were the best dad. Thank you for everything. Um, we're never going to forget you. But a few hours later, um, they called my sister and told her that um, our mom had to be intubated. They said that um, her oxygen was so low, she was going to go into cardiac arrest. So we rushed to get to see her. Um, 
before she passed. And um, we got there, she was still alive. And I remember I told her, Mom, you said you were gonna come home, but, you know, I, I knew it wasn't gonna happen. And I was telling her, it's okay, you could go. It was really hard. Um, I couldn't understand because she was so well. And um, we had just talked to her, you know, six hours before she died. Hours after her mom died, the call came. It was time to say goodbye to her dad. But before Blanca and her siblings could get to the hospital, he passed away. One of the nurses said, you know, I wanted to tell you, she's I was your dad's nurse. I was going through his record, you know, and then I saw that your mom's record was, you know, kind of attached to his. And I saw that she passed away at 12.34 a.m. And I said, yeah. And then she said, well, I need to tell you this. She said, it was the strangest thing because at that exact time, everything started failing with your dad. So at the same moment across town, your mother was passing away in one hospital. Your father started to have major organ failure at another hospital, that exact same moment. Exactly. I was raised Catholic, but I'm not super religious. I'm more spiritual in a way. But I tell you, when I walked in there and I saw my dad's face, I told him, you saw her, didn't you? The last person you saw and the first person you saw in death was our mother, wasn't it? It's only been, what, a couple of weeks since you lost your parents? How are you doing? I have my moments. I say it's like a roller coaster. Um, there's times when I just see their pictures and I break down or I just remember their last words. I break down, you know, um, we actually just buried them last Wednesday. Um, and that's another thing that COVID has hit this community so hard. Um, my parents wanted to be cremated, but, um, there were 500 bodies before them to get cremated. 500? 500. And they said um, almost all of those were COVID death. Is there a sense of anger or frustration or unfairness to all of this for you? Like when you look back at them, all the ways you tried to keep everyone safe and you couldn't, what is it that you feel? I'm, I'm angry at the people who are irresponsible, um, who know they're sick or, or know that they've been in contact with people who are sick and still go out. It doesn't matter that my parents were ill, that they had issues. We're still human. We still have a life to live. My parents could have lived, you know, maybe 10 years longer, max, maybe. I don't know, you know, but they still had time. Before you can fix a problem, you have to first acknowledge that it's there, that it's real, it exists. The pandemic, coupled with a national reckoning after George Floyd's killing, made the rest of the country face it too. Amanda Calhoun, the psychiatry resident you heard from earlier, said that's the first step on a long road. It makes me sad that a pandemic had to happen. George Floyd had to be murdered for people to realize that this is something that we need to talk about and we need to rectify. I do think more people are talking about it and more people are listening. Andre Perry saw that too, during the wave of protests last summer. I have a 10-year-old son, and I took my 10-year-old to many of the marches, 
And I remember the first one in DC and we were on 16th Street and there is a bridge there and an underpass and we could hear the chants, Black Lives Matter, Black Lives Matter. And when people emerged, it was largely white people. And I remember looking at my son going, he is witnessing something that I could never imagine seeing when I was a child other people saying Black Lives Matter. And so for me, that was a critical moment for my son, for me, for my community, that there is a recognition that racism is hurting other members of the community. You know, when I was coming up, when there were protests, it was primarily people who looked like me. And you had to feel like you were on an island. Not so much now. One year since the pandemic became real, the reality of two Americas is in plain sight for all to see. Black and brown people are more likely to know someone who died from COVID, more likely to have their business shuttered, less likely to have vaccine access, and slower to get their jobs back. So, as the country looks to move forward from this last year, The question is, what are we doing to make sure everybody gets to move forward? Next week, on the final episode of America Interrupted, The Longest Year. And she leaned forward and she gave me a kiss on the mouth. And I just had this feeling, this this awful feeling that I would never do this again. The people COVID took from us and how they're remembered by those who love them. This episode was produced by Leah Nagy, Rachel Welford, and Vika Aronson, and edited by Emily Carpo and Erica R. Hendry. Fact-checking by Sam Lane. Music by Blue Dot Sessions. Our thanks to Travis Dobb, Vanessa Dennis, James Williams, and Maura Shannon. Our executive producer is Sarah Just. You can follow all our coverage on air and on our website. That's pbs.org newshour. Thanks for listening.